Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's January 3rd. It's the first podcast of the year. And I don't really have much to talk about because, I mean, there's just been a massive amount of holidays over the last week. Not really much has happened, but I didn't do one last week. So I figured, what the hell? Here I am. Now, New Year's to me is an utterly contrived holiday. It's meaningless. This isn't Memorial Day. This isn't Thanksgiving. This isn't Christmas. This isn't Easter. This isn't Kwanzaa. It's not July 4th. It's not uh, Veterans Day. It's not Labor Day. It's not Memorial Day. It's not July 4th, Independence Day. It's just another day. December 31st and January 1st are the same days. They're just a day apart. Nothing really matters. I suppose maybe your income goes back to zero on January 1st for tax purposes, but there's really uh, no difference between the days. Now, do I think it's important to take stock of your life as to where you are once a year, I suppose? See where you are, see where you want to be, see where you've been. Of course, But does it have to be a holiday where people who drink too much need a pass to get drunk? Of course not. Because that's really all it is. You get drunk on, let's say, June 19th. You're an asshole. All right? You get drunk on December 27th as an adult. You're an asshole. Now, you get drunk as an adult on December 31st. Well, you're having an appropriate celebration, apparently. But guess what? The rest of us still see you as an asshole because the only people who think it's appropriate for adults with jobs to get drunk for no good reason, well, they're assholes. Now, the same people who have to pretend that they're happy, uh, you know, the ones that have to show the world uh, when they're dancing in the kitchen like no one's watching, but of course they have to make sure that they take pictures of them dancing in the kitchen to put on social media for the world to see just to pretend that their miserable fucking lives aren't so miserable. They're the ones who pretend to celebrate the hardest on new year's Eve. They're the ones who have to take a picture of two glasses clinking celebrating new year's. And they probably take 50 of these pictures until they get, you know, until it's Instagram. Perfect. No one cares. Literally, no one cares about your miserable life. And if you need to advertise your everyday existence on social media, your food, your drink, your working out, there's a good chance you're a meaningless idiot. Now, other New Year's musings. I find that New Year's Eve fireworks, somehow they've become a big deal. I don't know that I really understand why that is. Uh, But as my friend Nathan once noted, idiots love loud noises. They they love to hear things go boom. That's why idiots blow off fireworks on New Year's Eve, on July 4th, on July 3rd, on July 5th. Any excuse to make boom. By the way, most intelligent people have pet dogs. And unless you're just like a horrible pet owner, you know that fireworks torture dogs. But idiots who love loud noises, I guess, apparently don't have dogs. Or they're such idiots that they don't care or recognize that dogs are suffering when the fireworks go off. 
Now, in a similar vein, and I'm going to, of course, everything has to come back to the Middle East for me. When a Palestinian killer terrorist is released from an Israeli prison, naturally, because this is the society, they're welcomed home as a returning hero because being a murderer of Israelis is the greatest aspiration in Palestinian society. And not, not getting jobs or educating your child, but killing Israelis. When they're having the inevitable welcome home parade for the terrorists, the other terrorists fire off automatically weapons into the air and it's sort of a, a firework celebration for legitimate imbeciles this is also a popular phenomenon at, at, at arab weddings which often of course end with a guest getting shot now back to the palestinian killer parades as uh, nathan said idiots love loud noises idiots also apparently aren't aware that when they shoot bullets into the air that gravity exists back on earth even in a place uh, called Palestine, and the bullets must come down. And they often hit people, because that's what happens. Being an idiot includes not realizing that your actions have consequences, sometimes deadly ones. And in fact, there have been fatalities in the Palestinian territories from such moronic celebratory gunfire. Oh, speaking of, of Muslim terrorists, and speaking of New Year's Eve as well, naturally there was a Muslim terror attack in Times Square over the weekend where a Muslim convert attacked a rookie cop with a machete, slashed him in the head with it, of, of course, naturally. As it was a Muslim terror attack, it had to be a very large, sharp knife, and it had to hit a head, slice a head preferably a neck all the way through, but this time the cop was just hit on the head. It's their thing. Now, naturally, the Muslim convert was on the FBI watch list as he was still somehow allowed to be traveling to New York City and go to Times Square, the most populated place on earth probably at that time, with a weapon, even as he had expressed interest in jihad and fighting infidels in Afghanistan. His own family told law enforcement about this. His own family. This, of course, wasn't enough for law enforcement to do a damn thing about it. What's the point? Here's my question. What's the point in having a Muslim terrorist on a Muslim terror watch list if you're not going to actually watch him as he travels to Times Square on New Year's Eve with a machete? How is that a watch list? It's more like an ignore list. I suppose the FBI, in fairness, was more concerned with Twitter and Facebook and hiding stories on the Hunter Biden laptop issue or suppressing anyone from pointing out that the COVID vaccine is not really a vaccine at all. It's really just a treatment and causes sometimes fatal illnesses and heart issues. Better to focus on that than the Muslim terrorist on the watch list who's carrying a gigantic, I don't know, 19-inch machete into Times Square in New York City, just a couple miles from 9-11. Now, some people think Islam is a death cult instead of a religion. Not me. I actually think it's a beautiful religion. It's the religion of peace. Some people think that the people who convert to Islam are insane. Not me. I think they're just finding their way from perhaps a very troubled life into this beautiful religion where adherents coexist with those of other faiths, where they exist uh, um, in such places as Gaza, Iraq, Syria, and Iran, all the places where coexistence is embraced and your head isn't cut off for daring to worship anyone but Allah. Now, seriously, I, obviously I'm kidding, but I don't know why people convert to Islam and I don't know why so many converts to Islam become killers. 
But I'll give you this statistic, which I think is very interesting, and take from it what you may. In terms of numbers of Muslims in the following countries, I'm going to tell you what percentage are converts to Islam. Belgium, 2 to 8%. Obviously, it's not an exact science. Denmark, 1.4%. France, 1.4 to 4.6%. Germany, 0.3 to 4.5%. Spain, 2.5 to 5.1%. The Netherlands, 1.4 to 1.7%. Sweden, 1.7 to 2%. England, 3.5 to 3.9%. And the United States, 23%. That's like 10 times higher than any other country. That means that a good percentage, almost a quarter of all Muslims in America are converts. Maybe we should start putting all Muslim converts on FBI watch lists in America. I know that's not politically correct, so I apologize in advance. And maybe we we should actually watch them on the watch list, not pretend that it's a, a watch list when it's really an ignore list. Because isn't that the truth? Now, just one more quick topic in the news, and then I'm going to shift gears into uh, the legal realm. It was reported over the weekend that uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Newsom, Valencia, soon to be Trump, she demanded uh, to be paid $60,000 before agreeing to speak at the January 6th rally at the Capitol that Trump actually called for. And this is according to January 6th committee transcripts that were released. The committee was charged with investigating what occurred at the riot or the protest, whatever you want to call it, on January 6th, 2021, after Trump had lost the election. Now, we already knew that she was paid $60,000 to introduce her fiancé, Donnie Trump Jr., at the Stop the Steal rally outside the White House. That came out months ago. It was a three-minute speech consisting of 340 words. She received $176.47 for each word. That was already known. It didn't make a lot of news, but it was already known. What wasn't known and was just reported was how she got the money. The January 6th committee transcripts reveal that Guilfoyle Newsom, Valencia, soon-to-be Trump, she insisted that appearing at the Stop the Steal rally would not be free because she's such an important person. She couldn't possibly spend three minutes for free on her future father-in-law's rally. And here's what she was quoted as saying. This is in a text message, so this isn't uh, third hand. You will pay us. That's the deal. Us, by the way. You will pay us. That's obviously her and Donnie Jr., you will pay us. That's the deal. So don't even think about it. Guilfoyle knew some Valencia, soon to be Trump, wrote to Trump campaign deputy Caroline Wren in a text message. You will send the funds as promised. Wren and Guilfoyle knew some Valencia, soon to be Trump, disagreed on the payment, triggering Guilfoyle knew some Valencia, soon to be Trump, to say that they were done for life, according to the transcripts. Now, she did receive her payment, and she told the rally crowd with a big smile with all that makeup, we will continue to stand for President Trump, stand with them and for this country, as long as she gets paid $60,000 for three minutes to help her father-in-law. 
the money came from a Trump supporter. And, and this is what these people are, and I have been saying for years, everything is a grift. You're dumb enough to give Trump the Trump campaign money? He's spending it on lawyers for things that he did. He's giving it to his family. He's certainly not spending it on anything that matters to you. And he's certainly not spending his own money. He's spending yours. Kimberly Guilfoyle, Newsom, Valencia, soon-to-be Trump, is just another goddamn grifter in the Trump universe of grifters. Now, you know that Donnie Jr. wasn't appalled by her robbing Trump supporters. He thought it was awesome that she was able to grift like that. I mean, she's one of them. Herschel Walker, there were ads that the Trump uh, campaign put out for campaign contributions when he was uh, running for the Senate, that all-important Georgia runoff Senate seat, recently, just a couple of months ago. But when you clicked on the link, 90% of the contribution went to Trump instead of Walker, who actually needed the money to win the Senate seat. And this was obviously crucial for Republicans to have a chance to control the Senate or at least make it difficult for Democrats to get what they want because they're not going to be able to pass legislation as there's a couple of independents on the Democrat side in the Senate who often vote with Republicans. Now, naturally, Trump doesn't care about who controls the Senate. He cares about the grift. He only cares about the money. So who cares about Herschel Walker? He cares about the money, which is why Trump paid less in taxes in the last 10 years than I have by a mile. Money is his God, and if you're in his universe, you need to show that that you can grift, that you belong. So Kimberly Guilfoyle Newsom, Valencia, soon-to-be Trump, got to show that she belonged in the Trump family by driving a hard bargain, by being a Trump, by stealing money from the little people, because she hasn't married enough rich guys to amass enough money, I suppose. How utterly fucking embarrassing. She wouldn't work for three minutes for free? For her father-in-law? For the country? For a rally that he called for? And it's not like she's even remotely talented, other than marrying and divorcing rich guys, if you consider that a talent. And she knew that it wouldn't offend the Trump family. She knew they'd be proud of her. How do you know this? Because marrying into this family is her final meal ticket before she can't get anyone but 90-year-old men to marry her. So you know that she wouldn't dare offend them. So she clearly got the go-ahead to steal as much money from Trump supporters as she could. Because the Trumps, to, to people like the Trumps, Anyone dumb enough to give Donald Trump money to run for president are there to be fleeced. And Kimberly Guilfoyle, Newsom, Valencia, soon to be Trump, she knew she had to show that she belonged. Anyway, how utterly disgusting and typical of anyone associated with this repulsive family. Just when you think they can't get any lower, they show you they can get lower. Now, back to New Year's. You're supposed to make resolutions that you never keep. That's the point of New Year's, I suppose. Let's do a few simple ones that you should be able to keep. Now, let's, on that note, let's get back to the idiots who celebrate so hard on fake holidays. Don't be like them. Don't be lazy and dumb. That's a resolution. Write that down. Here's another one. Don't cheat yourself. If you cut corners, you're cheating yourself. All right? If you think you're getting away with something by half-assing your work, 
your studies. You're only hurting yourself. Do the hard work when no one is watching, because that's when you get better. Not when you're pretending to work uh, so that your boss will see it, or a client, or a teacher, or your Instagram followers who are all from fucking third world countries anyway and don't even know who you are. Trust me, we can see through all that. Do the hard work on holidays, on weekends, late at night, when your competitors are sleeping or messing around. Because it all comes out in the wash. You can lay around and be lazy and just try to appear busy when someone who pays you is watching, but you won't get any better. And you'll never really advance because of that. You'll still stink. And anyone who matters, anybody who's judging you, they'll sniff out your laziness, I promise. Now, I know that Americans no longer want to work hard since COVID. They refuse to have their wonderful lives interrupted by their careers. Lazy people may get over in the short run, but this is America. And unless you want socialism and to live in a thousand square foot home for your whole life, you're going to need to outwork your competition. It's really as simple as that. On Saturday, New Year's Eve day, I responded to and took calls from a number of clients. And I had texts from lawyers who I work with on cases, lawyers that I put into these cases who complained about having clients bother them on New Year's Eve day. My response to one, this is the life we chose. Stop complaining and be thankful that you're actually getting paid for essentially giving advice. You're fucking yentas. You're getting paid for your advice. On Sunday, I work too. This is life. There are no days off. And working on photo shoots for Instagram does not count as a workday. Now, in the same vein, want to be the best at what you do. If you don't, then what are you actually striving to be? Middle management? A worker bee? Working for someone your whole life? I'm going to use as two examples two clients of mine. Fat Joe, the rapper, James O'Keefe of Project Veritas. Two completely different fields. One is an entertainer, the other is a journalist. Both very similar, though, in terms of work ethic. In terms of being real, not full of shit, not smoke and mirrors. All they do is work. And both of them have really blown up large over the past 10 years. Fat Joe, not that long ago, had the feds on his ass, got a few months in jail for tax evasion, had the IRS around his neck. Just 10 years later, he's on top of the world. He's got a best-selling autobiography out that will make you laugh out loud. I know because I read it. It's very funny. He's got TV interview shows being ordered. He's got a one-man show at the Beacon Theater. He hosted the BET Awards show. He hosted the Wendy Williams show. He's a one-man wrecking crew now. And how did he do it? He happens to be the most down-to-earth regular guy you can imagine. All the people around him are the same way. They're all decent, respectful people with no egos. He just outworks everyone else. He puts the work in. He's not a fraud. And he's really a decent guy. So naturally kind and funny that people see it. You can see it. And you want to listen to what he has to say. I can genuinely report that there's no one who deserves success more than Joe. I'm proud to be his lawyer, and I'm proud to be his friend. As for James O'Keefe, he's had the balls to go after the government for 12 years now, since he's in his 20s. He started Project Veritas out of his parents' garage. Like, he was 25? 
And now he has reporters going undercover and exposing horrible things in our government, in our schools, in Planned Parenthood, in our media. Ten years ago, he was charged with entering federal property during one of his attempts uh, to go undercover under false pretenses with the intent of committing a felony. And uh, at, this was at the office of U.S. Senator Mary Landrieu, a Democrat in Louisiana. Eventually, he pled guilty to a federal misdemeanor and he received probation. That was the bottom. But he bounced back from that. And now his organization is huge and he's, he's making news every single day. He is a force to be reckoned with and he certainly scares the shit out of the Democrats as evidenced by their attempts to silence him and his organization after they got their hands on the Ashley Biden, that's Joe Biden's crackhead sex addict daughter's diary. They stormed his home and the homes of his reporters and they've been investigating him for a year. I'm proud to be his lawyer. And if the feds charge him, they're going to get a battle like none other, I promise you. He is a relentless guy, he's pure of heart, and he's a decent person. He's not greedy, he doesn't care about money, he believes in what he does. And I can't say that about many people, but I can say it about James and I can say it about Fat Joe. Now, completely different, we're going to go back to the practice of law. As I've mentioned uh, on this podcast, I love music a lot. I've been a, a music aficionado since I was a small kid. Truth be told, people who love music are more interesting than people who don't. And I'm not talking about shit music. I'm talking about good music. I try to incorporate music into my work because it's so important to me. Music is power. You can convey so much with music that you can't in mere words. So it's important to me, and I try to honor it in my work when I can. And not just honor it, but to help get important points across for consumption. And for anyone curious, I never give a hat tip. I never give an acknowledgement to the artist when I'm working. It's not really appropriate in the middle of a summation or an opening to mention the artist's name I just uh, stole from. But that's what I do sometimes. I take a bit from here or there and add it to my work to make the work better, to convey a powerful point, and also to pay homage to great artists from the past and bring them into the present, into arenas that they wouldn't normally ever get a chance to be in, to bring them into the courtroom with me. It makes me actually feel stronger. And the more you prepare as a lawyer, the more comfortable you are to freelance, to be spontaneous at trial, to take a chance. If you work hard enough, you can have a mastery over the facts. Such a mastery that you can go off the reservation a bit. Take a chance knowing that the government is picking apart every one of your words, looking for a mistake so that they can announce it loudly to the jury and make an ass out of you and ensure that your client gets convicted. Now I'm going to give you some examples of how music impacts or has impacted my work. I think I've mentioned this before, but every opening statement I give, I blast a song into my ears while sitting at the defense table just minutes uh, before the opening is to start. It's always the same song, and I've been doing it for decades now. The song is Guns of Brixton by The Clash. It's one of my all-time favorite bands. The, the literal meaning of the song is not important. The song was inspired by a, a Jamaican film called The Harder They Come, about an anti-hero named Ivan, a musician who becomes a gangster. None of that's important to me. The importance of the song to me 
is that the lyrics really capture the feelings of anger and rage due to the heavy-handedness of uh, the police. And how you, as the individual, you have to decide how to respond to it. It's not a song about uh, any case. It's a song about how I feel at that very moment. How I'm going to defend the person next to me. Am I going to roll over for the government? Or am I going to fight them to the death here? And the opening lines that are blistering into my ears are, and I'm going to quote, when they kick at your front door, how are you going to come with your hands on your head or on the trigger of your gun? When the law breaks in, how are you going to go shot down on the pavement or waiting on death row? Now, I swear that this song brings me to tears every single time I play it before trial as I'm about to start every single time. And that's how I try cases, not to make friends, not to lose easily with, with some polish, and, and not to put up a fight, just to, not just to, just to survive a trial so I can put up Instagram photos. It's a fight to the death every single time. Now, I put that song up in a post on my Twitter account with no explanation, just a link to the song during the Chapo trial, and that's before I was kicked off Twitter the first of a dozen times for daring to speak the truth that liberals don't want to hear. Naturally, the Latin press wrote article after article claiming that I misunderstood the song, that it had nothing to do with Chapo, that Chapo was nothing like the protagonist in the song. But of, of course, my playing the song had zero to do with Chapo. It had to do with me. And not only did the press not understand it, but they didn't even bother to contact me to ask me why I was tweeting that song. They just ran with it and wrote some moronic story. And this is why they're monkeys sitting in cubicles writing stories, and I'm not. Now, if we can go to the Gotti trial back in 2005, which actually started when he got indicted in 2004, the song Hurricane by Bob Dylan is about a famous murder case from the 60s in which champion boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter was falsely convicted of murder in Patterson, New Jersey in 1967, and he wasn't released until 1985 when the murder conviction and the life sentence was finally vacated. During the fight to free this innocent man, Bob Dylan wrote Hurricane, and the song is one of the best that he's ever done. I also read Carter's autobiography. It's called The 16th Round while I was in law school, and it was written while Carter sat in prison. I was completely blown away by it. It stuck with me until, you know, really until today. It hasn't had an impact on me and my desire to be a defense lawyer. At the original trial, and this was a New Jersey case, and as I said many times, I grew up in Jersey, two supposed eyewitnesses, two white men, Arthur Bellow and Dexter Bradley identified Reuben Carter and his black co-defendant as the shooters and killers of three whites in a bar in Patterson in 1966, and this is during a time of racial tensions in the city. They both recanted years later, claiming they were pressured by prosecutors to testify falsely. Bellow later testified that during his questioning by detectives, they referred to Carter and his co-defendant as animals and the N-word. He testified that the lead investigator visited his parents and told them that I would be a great hero if I testified for the prosecution. I felt that Gotti Jr. was unfairly charged in 2004. Now, he wasn't Reuben Carter, obviously, 
but the government made a deal with him in the late 90s that they wouldn't prosecute him anymore for old crimes that they knew about at the time of the plea. In exchange, he took a lengthy jail sentence. Now, I wasn't his main lawyer then, but I knew what happened. I was there. I saw it. Years later, as he was about to finish that prison stint, they charged him again in a wide-ranging RICO indictment, largely with crimes, all of them, in fact, that took place anywhere from the early 90s all the way up until the time he took his plea. Nothing after. In fact, everything that they charged him with, as I said, occurred prior to that plea agreement that landed him in prison for seven years. In my mind and in his mind, they really double-crossed him. And the song Hurricane, it was always on my mind. Always. And I wanted to include some of it into the summation, even a little bit, because the song was so powerful. Now, I've used, uh, you know, again, I hate to digress, but I, it just pops into my head that I've used other popular culture in that trial. It's hugely important to read, to listen to music, to understand the news, to, because you can use all of the stuff that you gather in the non-legal area. You can use it during trials, during cross-examinations, during openings and summations, and it's just there in your head waiting to be used. And you can draw people in that way if you can talk about anything. But as I said before, bringing giants into the courtroom with you on your shoulders, it gives you a feeling of more power in a position where you oftentimes are powerless because you need everything you can get when you're fighting the feds. And again, I'm going to digress. But when I was a kid, and as I said, I was a huge listener of music, and some of the music was fun I listened to. I'm talking like age, you know, 10. Some of the fun music I listened to was like the Beach Boys. That was like a non-threatening band. Easy, easy to consume. Some of the music that I listened to scared the shit out of me and was really forbidden. And that was like Led Zeppelin. I was a kid, and these Brits, they had their long hair, and they had this hard rock sound, and there was this hint of Satan around them. You'd read the stuff that Jimmy Page worships Satan, and as a kid, it was terrifying, but it was empowering, you know, secretly, which is why, for the most part, I listened to the Beach Boys, because they didn't scare me, but Zeppelin did, you know, when I dared to listen to them. Now, even in college, years later, this is a true story. I'd forgotten about this, and until I was thinking about this show. I remember destroying a vinyl copy of Led Zeppelin IV because I played a few lines of Stairway to Heaven backwards. It was known that they talked about Satan if you played the album, the song, backwards. At least that's what conventional wisdom was among idiots like me. Here are the lyrics backwards. You can play it yourself and you'll hear it. Here they are. Ready? Get ready. Here's to my sweet Satan, the ones whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. He'll give you 666. It's on there. Mr. Producer, play those few seconds backwards. You see, it's there. At least I think it's there. Now, I was 20 when I played Stairway to Heaven 200 times backwards. It scared the shit out of me then. But as with all my fears, I tried to overcome them by immersing myself in them. I went out and bought the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, and I learned all about Satanism. It's a <clears throat> philosophy. 
It's really just live and let live, indulge every whim, take what you want, as long as you don't hurt others. So because of Led Zeppelin, I'm studying Satanism and destroying Led Zeppelin for. That's, that's just swell. Anyway, I digress. I always wanted to use something Led Zeppelin in court, if I could, once I actually became something and people were listening to me. And I had the chance at the first court appearance when John Gotti Jr. had been indicted. After the first court appearance, I gave the following quote and mentioned the title of a Led Zeppelin song, No Quarter. The term no quarter, if you don't know, it's a military term. It means that in battle, no prisoners are taken. Instead, they'd all be killed, showing no mercy to the enemy. And in the New York Times of July 31, 2004, I was quoted as follows. John absolutely 100% denies any involvement in the Sliwa attack, his new lawyer, Jeffrey Lickman, told reporters. He said Gotti would, quote, give no quarter in fighting the charges. And I fucking meant it. I knew that no one would be taking me seriously at that point. I was a young lawyer. This was my first high-profile case. There was no chance I could win, according to the public. Except in my mind, I was coming so hard for them, they would never knew what hit them. And I was thrilled seeing that quote in print. I remember thinking, will anyone make the connection between what I said and Led Zeppelin? I always wondered if I'd ever get the chance to tell anyone from the band about this. Oh, well. Now, the Gotti Jr. case featured Sammy Gravano's former clue crew. Sammy Gravano had flipped against John's father, and his crew had flipped against John Jr. Sammy Gravano had testified against the father at a trial in the early 90s and got him life in prison. Everyone in New York knew who Sammy Gravano was. He had been the underboss of the Gambino family under John Gotti Sr. And as I said, he flipped against the elder Gotti. He testified against him and just ended his life. And as you'll hear in a minute, as I begin the reading of the opening statement, I needed a hook to bring the jury in quickly. They were chomping at the bit to convict John Jr. No question. So, and that was before the case even started. So I needed something to catch their attention, to get them to listen to me. And I was sitting down, I was writing the opening. It all came to me because I had so much in my head from so many different areas of life. All of Sammy's crew was to testify in the case against John Jr., much the way their boss, Sammy Gravano, testified against my client's father. They had a blueprint to follow. And Gravano got the most sweetheart of sentences, five years total for 19 admitted murders. And each and every crew member who was to testify against John Jr., 14 years after Gravano helped convict the father, they knew of the sweetheart sentence, and they all believed that Gravano had lied on the stand when he testified. This was all buried in the materials, the discovery we received from the government before the trial. I had the information. I just had to read every word. Now, did it have anything to do with the guilt or innocence of John Jr.? No. But could I use that information somehow to harm the witness's credibility? Hell yes. Would anyone else have thought of this? No chance. It was just too much in the weeds. It required too much creativity. It really had to be out there. In fact, these same witnesses, the uh, Gravano crew, testified a year earlier in the same courthouse against John Jr.'s uncle, Peter Gotti. None of this was mentioned at the trial by Peter's defense lawyer, any of the defense lawyers on trial. But as I said, the harder you work, 
the more brilliant ideas can bubble to the surface. I'm going to digress again. Pay attention. Remember the son of Sam? You remember that? He was the maniac serial killer who terrorized New York City in the mid-70s, and he claimed he was taking orders from his neighbor, uh, Sam's satanic dog. Well, I did. That's what came to me. And, and as I'm sitting there writing the opening statement, the very beginning of it, it all came together. The Son of Sam period of New York City horrified and terrified the people of New York City with its violence, disgusting violence. If you lived in New York back then, you'll never forget it. And it had become part of popular culture. Here's how the opening of the John Gotti Jr. trial began, in which I started with my defense theory that John had left the mafia, he had turned his back on his father's life, the boss of the Gambino family, and he sought out a peaceful life instead. I'm going to read this verbatim from the transcript. This is a case about fathers and sons. One son, my client, John A. Gotti, who wants to reverse and rewrite his father's legacy. And another set of sons, the government's cooperating witnesses, who are following in the bloody footsteps of their mafia father, Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, the most famous mafia government cooperating witness ever. The government talks about conspiracies involving my client. What they don't want you to hear about is the conspiracy involving all of Gravano's former crew members and close criminal friends, the government's witnesses in this case, who will testify that each and every one of them is fully aware of the extraordinary deal that Gravano extracted from the government. Five years in prison for 19 murders. And each of these witnesses will tell you that they've read notes of Gravano's debriefings with the government. And the witnesses will tell you that they believed that Gravano left out things in his debriefings with the government, crimes, names of his friends and crew members. You'll hear testimony that the government's witnesses believed Gravano gave passes to his crew members, passes from getting indicted, that he protected them. And you'll hear about Gravano's secret deal with the government, about how long he'd actually have to testify for them. And the government's witnesses here will all testify that they want the same or better deal that Gravano got from the government. These witnesses copied Gravano's murderous acts when they were on the street under his wing, and now they're copying his method of manipulating the government. These are the sons of Sammy. And that's how the trial started. I got the son of Sam in, I got Sammy Gravano in, I got it all in to show that these witnesses from the very start had a blueprint on how to get out of this mess and lie on the stand. At the end, I had decimated all of these witnesses in a, in a case that once seemed impossible to win just 23 trial days earlier, now felt like we had a real chance at the end. And I felt moved by the uh, Bob Dylan song, Hurricane, as I was getting ready for the summation. It made me emotional. It made me emotional in front of the jury. And that made me appear believable and convinced of my client's innocence. And that's important. If I believed, they, the jury, could believe too. And the part of Hurricane, the song, that always really hit me between the eyes had these lyrics. I'm going to read them because I can't play them. I'm not allowed. Reuben Carter was falsely tried. The crime was murder one. Guess who testified? Bello and Bradley, and they both baldly lied. And the newspapers, they all went along for the ride. How can the life of such a man be in the palm of some fool's hand? 
to see him obviously framed couldn't help me feel ashamed to live in a land where justice is a game. So on to the summations. When I wrote the song, when I, when I wrote the summation, the song Hurricane, it was in my head the entire time. The government went first and I followed. They had a rebuttal the next day to my summation. And I talked about the cooperation agreements that the government had with the cooperating witnesses and how they had promised to rip them up if the witnesses ever lied on the stand. And as I had promised during the opening, they would get caught lying repeatedly. And I discussed the most important, the most important thing, the so-called 5K1 letter. And that refers to a section in the sentencing guidelines, which allows the government to ask for a sentence all the way down to zero to probation for their cooperators and how badly the cooperators wanted them and how they would get them even though they lied on the stand in this case and how the cooperators all pretended they could still get life sentences when they knew they'd be getting out of jail soon. And many of them already were out on so-called bail, but they weren't going back. And in my summation, I did some unusual things. I talked directly to the prosecutors in front of the jury. I turned to them and I addressed them directly. I'm sure it was improper, but no one stopped me. And that's sort of how I practice law. If you don't stop me, I'm going to just keep doing it. If you just do what everyone else has done before you, why even get up in the morning? I wasn't put there to just emulate prior greats. I was there to build on what they had done and better it. Here's the very end of the summation. And again, I'm reading from the transcript. In the end, you must decide if you can live with these lies that you heard today and you've heard over the first four or five weeks of this trial. If you feel misled about the lies they say, the testimony... It's complete. They get, they, you'll be able to stop them. But they refuse, the government refuses to acknowledge all those sneaky lies, all their looking the other way when their cooperators were hiding property, the lies about their cooperation agreements being ripped up. They lie about how they all felt they were going to get life in prison possibly, even though they had their magical 5K1 letters, even when you know most of them, if not all of them, are out on bail already. The prosecutors talk about their testimony, these cooperators, like it's the gospel. Those witnesses lied to you, and they lied to you repeatedly. You heard this story before? After all, these are the sons of Sammy, his closest confidants. It's only a matter of time before they're back in business or out on the street. You must decide if these defendants here deserve a better shake from the government. You must decide if you would want the same treatment for yourself or for your loved ones. This is one of the last times I'm going to speak to you in this case. The prosecutor, Mr. McGovern, is going to come in tomorrow and try to take my head off, no doubt. You heard an opening from the government. You heard a very long summation from the other lawyers yesterday. And at that point, I turned to Mike McGovern, who I really liked. He was the lead prosecutor. He's sitting right behind me, but facing the jury. You still have not acknowledged any of these cooperating witnesses lied on the stand. Will you tomorrow? We all know you won't. I then turned my back to him and addressed the jury directly. When I started this case in the opening, I told you that I would show you that the cooperators were liars. I made that promise to you. The government promised truth of its cooperators. They broke that agreement. Can you live in a country where justice is a game? Where it's hide the ball? Where we only get to hear what is needed to get a conviction? If you don't believe your lying eyes, well, just listen to your lying ears. Would you trust something important with these cooperators? Something really important? 
your life. You promised when you got picked for this jury that you would be putting the name Gotti out of your mind. You would do the right thing. You promised that every last one of you, you promised, and I'm going to hold you to it. Otherwise, John Gotti is convicted before this case even started, and that is not right. It's just not right. You can send a message with your verdict. No, this is not right. You can't put this garbage before us and lie to us. This is still America. It's America. We expect our government to treat us better. Now, I don't know anything you people are thinking right now. I don't know anything about you. I don't know what you were thinking during the jury selection. I know right now that there are some people here, though, that have listened to every word of this for the past five weeks. And I know that there are some of you here who have reasonable doubt about this case, that don't trust what happened, who think that there are lies that were handed to you here by these witnesses, by their witnesses. I don't know who it is who feels that way of you. I don't know anything, but you do. I know that there is no question in my mind that some of you are repulsed by what happened here and want to reject this. I'm asking you this, every single one of you, every single one of you to hold on to those beliefs. The judge is going to tell you that you need to listen to the other jurors, and you should. I'm asking you right now, every single one of you, to hold on to your beliefs. Hold on to them hard. You don't have to give them up. You don't have to feel pressured in this high-profile case, this big case all over the papers with reporters and sketch artists all over the courtroom. You don't have to give up those strongly held beliefs if that's the way you feel. I'm asking you now to hold on to those beliefs. Hold on to them like grim death. Do not give up. The judge will give you an instruction on how to deliberate. I'm asking each and every one of you to do the right thing. Do not feel pressured. This is an important case for you, for them, for us, for America. Please do the right thing. Hold on to your beliefs. You know something stinks here. Remember that when you hear the rebuttal tomorrow. Thank you. 23 days after the opening statement, John Gotti Jr. walked out of jail. Jeffrey Lickman, Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, beyondthelegallimit.com. Write to me with any thoughts, any comments, any suggestions. I'll actually return your emails. See you next week.